Welcome, everybody, back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me, as always, is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski. Well, hello, everybody. Andrew, what does petroleum, aluminum, cable TV, college basketball, and the world's first crematorium have in common? Well, I think he gave it away with the world's first. I did. <laughs> the All of these things... As crazy as it sounds, all had a beginning in Pittsburgh. Now, I'm not saying that these are Pittsburgh's first whatever. I'm saying world's first. Yeah, we'll do a Pittsburgh first. Yeah, yes. we well, we have to. We have to because, like, Pittsburgh first. I mean, there's so many Pittsburgh firsts, you know, and, and we will get to that because uh, it's a great tale. But uh, what we decided to kind of do for this episode is uh, kind of a rundown of some of the I guess you could call them greatest hits to come out of Pittsburgh's Book of World Records, right? Um, it's probably be the episode title uh, for this one. And, uh, you know, I might as well get right into it. And um, we'll start right where it began. Well, not where it began, but where we are talking through right now, which is KDKA Radio. Yes, the Pioneer so, Broadcasting Station. Right. Now, no, the concept of radio, amateur radio, wasn't invented in Pittsburgh, right? That, that was invented, you know, by what Marconi, you know, and some of these other famous names you hear about. Yeah. It was a group of people, I guess you could say. Um, however, during the 1910s, you know, there was a wide range of amateur radio licenses going out and, uh, world war one breaks out and the government made it illegal for amateur radio to be broadcast. So you'd have to have only, uh, you know, government only mandated radio. Um, soon after world war one, it was over. They started, issuing commercial licenses and the first person to get one uh was indeed frank conrad in his east pittsburgh shack above his garage uh which would become kdk radio and that was on november 2nd 1920 they famously made their first broadcast even the word broadcast had started right here but people didn't even know what to call it you know they just like what talk on the air like what do you call it and they say broadcast you know so it was uh that it's in and of itself has its origin but it doesn't end there. Well, we'll have to do a KDKA only. Oh yeah, cast I mean, coming up. Every one of these the things you could technically do a show on. I mean, it's no, but KDKA for sure because there's so much history involved. I mean, I have another list which I brought, but I'm, I'm not going to read it all because it's just insane. Um, because which we'll save for the full show. But you know, the very first baseball game ever broadcast on live radio, the very first theater, the very first you know church service, the very first everything on radio began right here in Pittsburgh, uh, commercially. And, um, I mean, I mean, it's the first symphonic concert, the first time music was ever played over the air. I mean, it's, it's nuts. (laughs) So, um, but Pittsburgh and radio have a deeper connection. And there was a man named Reginald Fezzedin. who was a weird guy. If you Google him and just read about his life story, he's a weird guy. Well, the name's enough. Yeah, you think, you know, but he was a uh, some kind of a mechanical engineer or electrical engineer for the University of Pittsburgh, and he taught there briefly. But on his spare time, he, he would experiment with this uh, concept of wireless telegraphy. So you had, um, you know, they knew how to do telegraphs. That's what Marconi invented. Yeah. Like, he didn't invent talking on the radio. Reginald Fezzedin invented that. Uh, but what Marconi did was develop a system that he could wirelessly, wirelessly transmit tones, so dots and dashes, like SOS. You know, and Reginald here, Reggie, 
<laughs> Reggie Fezzedin, uh Mr. October. That's right. Was here in Pittsburgh and uh, was hanging out at the Allegheny Observatory, which we will also do a show on, and decided to uh, experiment with this technology and figured it out. And he was able to broadcast his voice through the air for the first time in modern history. Where did he do this at? Allegheny Observatory to a, a remote location in the north side. Uh, you know, to a receiver because you, you had to have like a way to receive the signal. You couldn't just, you know, start talking into outer space. Yeah. <laughs> you had to have receive it. And, uh, yeah, he'd started doing that. That was October, I think of 1899 or in the late 1890s. And more famously on Christmas Eve that same year, he went to the coast of, of America and, uh, the coast guard was out, you know, doing their thing. And, and, uh, they were used to getting those signals over the Morse code and, and all of a sudden the Morse code stops. And they hear a man's voice for the first time, and they said, don't be alarmed. Uh, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas. There's a new technology we're experimenting with, and and uh, we'd like to play some Christmas carols for you. And they, him and his family, Reggie and his family, proceeded to sing and play the violin and, and sing Christmas carols. I can't imagine what that would be like yeah. when you first hear it, like, hello. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, Jim, did you hear that? <laughs> so, yeah, it was uh, – but – what the history books won't tell you is that it really began in Pittsburgh. In October of that year, the same year, he did do the test in Pittsburgh, and he did prove that it could be real. Uh, the reason why history books won't tell you that is because of the technology just never caught up to people back then. And we've talked multiple times on the show about um, the access to these archives, newspaper archives especially, for the first time in history, searchable by word and by date. Uh, now is, can uncover things that have just l- been passed over or just lost the time. So sure enough, you start searching for Fezzedin in Pittsburgh newspapers, you'll find that article from the, uh, October, of the year, you know, the months previous to his actual accomplishment. It's crazy stuff, you know, changing history there. Um, but it doesn't end with radio. Television got its start here in 1949, January 11th specifically of 1949. There was an incident that occurred at the Syria Mosque in Oakland. Okay. This, uh, now television, the concept of television, people have been trying to master ever since the 1920s and 1930s. And there was experimentals, uh, you know, lab, in laboratories of tests. And they were very faint and very dim. And it was very hard to, to actually see the broadcast. And, um, and even when they did figure it out, early television was taped and was later played back live. No one figured out how to connect city to city so that other cities could see the same live broadcast of a television show. But this event that happened here in Pittsburgh on January 11, 1949, changed the game. They were able to connect through a uh, coaxial cable for the first time and produce cable television and produce a live show, which would indeed connect the nation through television. Was that crazy? That's crazy. I do radio, but television yeah. too, right? So Vladimir Zorkin, who's the guy who's credited with inventing television, he was one of the many people. There was, again, groups and groups of people that, but he was the guy who perfected the uh, cathode ray tube, uh, which is kind of what makes television, early television possible. He worked for Westinghouse, and uh, Westinghouse were the people that were funding that project to get that done. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so... Oh, I think else. He continues to amaze, right? Well, why don't we stick with entertainment? You think that it would end, right, with you know, radio, television. What else could there be, right? Movies. 
Well, <laughs> turns out uh, the largest theater produ- uh, promoter. Now, when I say theater, I'm talking about vaudeville theater, live theater. Uh, we're, we're two men, uh, a guy named Harry Davis and his son-in-law, a guy named John P. Harris. Now, uh, you probably have heard of like, the Harris Theater yeah, or uh, even the Stanley Theater or maybe the Gaiety or the Bijou or the Academy. or uh, There's so many different theaters in early Pittsburgh history. All of them fantastic. The Nixon Theater was another big one, uh, not named after the president, a different Nixon. Uh, but anyways, they had uh, a Lowe's Penn Theater, you know, all these different theaters. Well, they they would show movies in between acts. So you have a vaudeville act going on, you know, and then there's an intermission. They'd bring up a little screen and say, okay, here's a five-minute-long little video clip, you know, film. And people watch it and just, you know, continue right back on to live entertainment. Well, Harry Davis had this idea. He's like, look, uh, you know, I have all these extra movies laying around. Uh, why don't we, like, rent a space somewhere downtown Pittsburgh on Smithfield Street, which they did, Smithfield, and decided to... Uh, kind of install a makeshift little movie theater, which they called, they came up with the term, a Nickelodeon, which was uh, because it cost a nickel and because Odeon is another name for theater. So it was a nickel theater, <laughs> right? And um, they uh, it was open from 8 a.m. to midnight every single night. Now, that instance and that building and that location and that, thing that they did showing nothing but movies in this place is credited with the world's first movie theater and the more you look into the movie history in pittsburgh i mean we're gonna have, we're definitely going to be doing probably multiple episodes on the movie history of pittsburgh but i'll give you a prime example david o selznick uh the producer of gone with the wind you know and alfred hitchcock's rebecca and among many many other very famous hollywood productions born and raised in pittsburgh uh, the Warner Brothers grew up in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Didn't they have a studio here? They well, an early studio. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the same. They, they they were good at uh, film distribution, you know, which originated out of Pittsburgh. And uh, they saw like how you can make money just distributing films, and th- and that's what they were good at. And that's what they they didn't necessarily make films. They mm-hmm. they distributed them. Um, pretty interesting stuff. So that, I mean, that's just entertainment. I mean, and that and that's just only like the we're just scratching the surface of um entertainment first these are world first okay but when i think of um maybe one of the biggest world firsts to come out of pittsburgh you start gotta start thinking about sports and when i say first i'm talking in baseball in 1903 they had this kind of crazy wild idea you know at the at the end of the season the national league and the american league would just have you know whoever had the best score at the end of the season they were just declared the winners that was it. That was the end of the story. They went back home and started again next year. Well, they had this kind of wild idea to get whoever had the best, you know, ratings and the best standings in both the National League and the American League and get them together and play a game of seven rounds and call this thing the World Series. I thought it was nine games back then. No, seven. Yeah. And 1909, uh, I mean, 1903 was the very first year they chose to do it. And, uh, and we unfortunately lost. That first World Series against Boston. But we were the Pirates, so we always were the Pirates, even back then. Prior to 1891, we weren't, but, you know, that's a story for another day. But, yeah, the world's first World Series happens right here in Pittsburgh. Uh, And we later went on to win the 1909 World Series, which was the very first World Series to contain a Game 7, oddly enough. You know, most of the time they ended before a Game 7 was even possible. It was the Boston Americans 
Boston Americans? And it was a best of nine. Best of nine. Well, how about that? <laughs> okay. That's proof that I do not know everything. <laughs> that's why I'm here. That's right. That's why you're here. And uh, baseball, yeah, that's great. Okay, baseball, yeah, that's one sport, right? Uh, you know, what else do you got? Well, you know, I'm sure if you're if you're a regular listener, you might have heard our episode about hockey and how in 1901 and 1902, 1903, uh, all still three years, all those three years, still prior to any other kind of claim uh, that exists out there about professionalism in hockey. But in 1902, there is a newspaper article that appears from the Ottawa Journal. So it's not even Pittsburgh Papers, but Ottawa that declares that all of Pittsburgh's players were being paid to play hockey. Uh, these are Canadian imports that left from playing, you know, winning the Stanley Cup. There's some people that won the Stanley Cup the previous year that moved to Pittsburgh and started playing hockey. Like, why? Because they were getting paid. And that w- in them getting paid is the very first instance of people being paid to play the game of hockey. In other words, the birth of professional hockey as we know it. You know, this is relatively, relatively speaking, historically, this is breaking news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a hundred years too late, but yes, break, it is breaking news because previous to today, you know, the technology didn't exist to find this kind of stuff. I mean, like, you wouldn't believe uh, the amount of research that I put into uh, researching hockey and the birth of professionalism throughout Canada, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I mean, you had to search every newspaper across the world for any mention of hockey for those years. That's what I did. <laughs> so it was, uh, I'll have a nice little timeline. If anyone's ever interested, let me know. I can uh, email that to you. Oddpittsburgh at gmail.com. But it doesn't stop there. As incredible as it may seem, baseball firsts, hockey firsts, we also have a football firsts. And um, not only did we have the very first African-American coach, by the way, uh, which existed later in, later in this, you know, the realm of football history. Uh, same with baseball. We had the very first uh, African-American baseball manager. You know, <laughs> also the very first time African-Americans ever were on the single team in Major League Baseball at once was also in Pittsburgh. But And these are, I guess, you consider world first, but we'll probably save that for our Pittsburgh first because that's more Pittsburgh specific. But in general, uh, there was a competition going on between the Pittsburgh Athletic Club and the Allegheny Athletic Association. Okay, back in those time periods, you didn't necessarily you didn't the Steelers didn't exist, so you had these like professional clubs. Uh, well, not I guess they were amateur clubs at the, actually at the time uh, that were usually sponsored by like the railroad industry or some kind of business or bank or whatever, and uh, and they played a serious game. I mean, it was not like a you know for amateur game, you know, just because the word amateur is there. There were serious players; uh, no they just weren't getting pass. paid to do it. Yeah, no forward pass, <laughs> right, right. They decided to uh, kind of cheat uh, the Allegheny Athletic Association by uh, paying a guy from Yale University, the best football player, best college football player there, that was known to exist at the time, a guy named William Pudge Huffelfinger. And Pudge, Pudgy or whatever. Yeah, you know, the Pudger. The Pudge. <laughs> um, he was uh, recruited, basically, to come here and play this one game against uh, the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. And sure enough, uh, he was paid $500, by the way. Uh, and this was 1892. That's a lot of money. In 1892, that's a lot of money, yeah. I mean, $20 bucks in 1892 would be the equivalent of about 500 bucks today. So 500 bucks 
would be a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah fifteen thousand. I don't know. Anyways, uh, yeah, he was paid to play in that game, and, uh, and oddly enough, he was the only person that even scored a touchdown. So you know, it was worth, worth the money. Yeah, and they actually did win the game. Um, it was considered scandalous at the time that they actually paid somebody to play football. I mean, like this was considered a purely an amateur thing. Same with hockey. You know, that the pay, be paid to play the game was considered a slap in the face to people who put years and years of work in amateurism because um, they were playing it more for like the love of the game and not so much for the paycheck um, like it is today. <laughs> you know, you um, mentioned that in hockey too that it was an insult to be paid. Yeah, yeah, a slap on the face to every Canadian to be played to hockey. You know, paid to play hockey. Um, it's still a touchy subject. I've t- it's, as it turns out, I've read some things. Uh, even the pri- some other uh, people from uh, Canada do not agree with that. You know, idea of the professionalism in sports. Uh, I think it takes away from the actual meaning of hockey. Um, but this football fact was, in fact, uh, pay uh, that the proof of that. There was a journal that was from the Allegheny Athletic Association, like a record book. A receipt and that does appear in the receipts of him being paid to play that game and that receipt is now on a wall in the football hall of fame so wow well, <laughs> so it's definitely it's in definitely there. yeah the real deal uh the first right so now we get to uh other things right you have uh you ever hear of a guy named john roebling i have oh uh do you know so what's what's he most famous most famous for building the Brooklyn Bridge. That's right. That's right. Now don't jump off it just because other people are. But he <laughs> did in you know create the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, grew up. Well, he wasn't born in Pittsburgh, but he when he when he moved here when he was a little kid, he lived in Saxonburg of all places, along Route Eight, <laughs> and uh, he started a uh, a company there where they were actually making uh, wires and like cable wires. Um, and he was had this idea to kind of put it all together between these arch spans along a bridge and and created the world's first cable suspension bridge, which, as you can tell, most bridges are still that today, including the three sister bridges. They're a prime example in Pittsburgh and the, and the Smithville Street Bridge. The original Smithville Street Bridge was the one that he created. There's been three since then. Well, two others since then. I mean, he, his was the first, and that actually burned down during the fire of 1845. Another <laughs> so, episode we've done. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but the piers that are at the, uh, on the Smithville Street Bridge are the same piers that were there that he originally put there, Joe Roebling, I mean, John Roebling, all the way back in 1845. So now when you get back to like those 19th century facts, right, of all the stuff in the 1800s, I mean, Pittsburgh was a powerhouse, you know, when it came to industry and, and um, all this kind of money that was being fil- you know, filtered in here, and it created all this kind of um, expansion of ideas and people to do these ideas and, and invent. And it kind of provided the right environment for inventions to happen. Because you do have to ask yourself after you start reading some of these other things, like uh, I'll give you an example. Um, 1853, um, Samuel Keir became uh, started experimenting with the first known distilling process for petroleum uh, which you could now today call refining petroleum and he created the very first refined petroleum and uh, you actually would did it to make uh, crude oil turn into lamp oil but simple things like that you know that's one thing you know now that's not uh, you think of all the oil lamps that you see all over the world right well 
that had its beginning with Samuel Keir, 1853, in Pittsburgh. Uh, aluminum. Now, we all know the, the name Alcoa, right? Uh, but you probably don't or might uh, know the P- Pittsburgh Reduction Company. Okay, uh, but that was the original name of Alcoa. And this guy named Charles Martin Hall, um, a lo- so actually simultaneously with another inventor from over in Europe named Heralt, uh, created this process by passing electrical current into like a tub of water with a certain type of a, a metallic thing in there with some other chemicals, and the byproduct of shocking it was aluminum. <laughs> How did people come up with this kind of stuff? I don't know. Well, he's a good example because Hall um, came up with this at the same time. Another guy came up with it, like in France, and they, they actually call the process today of aluminum called the the Hall Herhalt uh, process. And um, yeah, but I, I don't know how. That's the thing. That's the question you have to ask yourself when you're starting to go through all these things. That's why you know you're talking about refining petroleum and then. Um, you know, aluminum, the invention of aluminum. And think about everything that's aluminum in this room. I mean, the microphones, I think, are made out of aluminum, you know? So it's like this all had their start here in Pittsburgh. I think another interesting fact, and I, I could, um, I know I'm not correct with the number exactly, but somewhere around 70% of all the total aluminum ever made is still being used today and it's being re- constantly recycled. Wow. Uh, I can imagine, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, think about that. You can recycle it. Well, it's such it's a durable, credible. It's it's, it's it was a game changer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, speaking of aluminum, Alcoa teamed up in 1962. So, like, think back to beer cans, right? And you find the woods. You know, we do. You know, I'm sure people listening uh, have uh, remember back when it was just kind of like that kind of pop can, you know, like the pool tab. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has that uncle that has like you know a, a Steelers Super Bowl Iron yeah. City can or something from exactly. the 70s still right you know they had that kind of little you know tab that you pull off well they they decided to kind of combine forces alcoa the same company making this aluminum uh because you know the cans of course are made out of aluminum and they teamed up with iron city and they invented the pull tab on aluminum cans which i mean they're still used to this day i mean every can of pepsi has got a pull tab on it right it was a, a bit different they no no this was the same bit, but it's the same. Oh, it's really? never changed. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? The pull tab on cans. But that is a Pittsburgh thing, okay? Um, How did they open them before? With a can opener. <laughs> you'd have to have a thing, and you'd stick it in the side of the can. That's how you drank your beer. <laughs> you know, put a hole in the lid yourself, you know, without uh, any kind of help. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was amazing. Like, how, I just couldn't believe that. Well, it's something that's so simple and you don't think about it ever but how much how big of a difference it was like the zipper you know or yeah you know speaking of very uh simple simplistic things you know when you have the idea of like a making a vanilla sundae or chocolate sundae right like what do you think you could add to that sundae to make it even better a banana banana, maybe you know a banana yeah so in uh 1904 Dr. David Strickler. Now, and that's okay. That's granted. This is in Pittsburgh. I get that, right? It is Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's still Western. So it does PA. still count as our world first coming out of this general area. And uh, my dad grew up in Latrobe, and that's is where Strickler's drugstore is located or was located. And I do remember him telling me about going to the actual place. I mean, the old man was dead by then. Yeah, sure enough, in the drugstore of David 
Strickler in Latrobe. He came up with that combination. A 23-year-old man, this guy, came up with a combination of throwing a banana on there and calling a banana split and the rest is history. <laughs> so, yeah. Speaking of food, right? Now, you know, I'm not going to say pits, you know, ketchup and all that type of stuff because, I mean, obviously we know there was ketchups before yeah. uh, H.J. Hines. He perfected it, but we will talk about his Pittsburgh first, you know. But we do have um, – what do you, you think is the most commonly sold or most popular hamburger at a fast food chain known to man across the world? Uh, I would say it's probably one that was made right here for the first time. That's right. That's right. And that it indeed was. 1967 in a Little North Hills McDonald's. I mean, Night Road. <laughs> okay. Now Next let me, to North Hills Village. Let's just address this real quick. I will. North Huntington. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's not. It is not. And I have the proof. I have the proof. Yeah, I have it from Jim Delegati's own words, you know, his own hand. I have the document that states that he indeed uh, put it together, you know, two all beef patties, sesame seed bun, you know, all that, <laughs> um, and invented the Big Mac right there in that kitchen in 1967. And uh, test marketed it at his Uniontown store in North Huntington. Um, he also owned the that was the, that big McDonald's on McKnight Road, which is still there to this day, uh, was the very first McDonald's in Western Pennsylvania. Um, and then he opened one in Wexford, one in Bellevue, and one in Uniontown. Uh, and he also owned the one downtown Pittsburgh as well. And the one in downtown Pittsburgh, by the way, was the first McDonald's to serve breakfast. Is that interesting? Anywhere? Yeah. Well, anywhere it was the first McDonald's to test market breakfasts. <laughs> that's the my favorite place uh, to get breakfast is one of them is McDonald's. There you go. There you go. We got Pittsburgh to thank. You know. So here's a crazy one. Um, well, there's two things. You know. So telephones, of course, didn't get their start here, but a couple telephone related things did, and uh, one is the pitcher phone. So. It's not called that today, obviously. You know, today we call it FaceTime or Skype or whatever you want to call it. But the concept of sending an image and talking and someone receiving it live was way ahead of its time. I mean, it's the stuff of science fiction. In uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, that came out in 1968, they did have a version of a picture phone in that movie. But that picture phone, uh, about AT&T, kind of put together. Uh, test marketed it right here in Pittsburgh, and they did a public demonstration for the first time ever in the world, uh, the demonstration of what they called the picture phone. And that was done live on TV, and they have a recording of it. It's actually on YouTube if you go search for it. Yeah. And uh, of uh, Mayor Pete, and he called John Harper at Alcoa. Uh, it was kind of like a direct connection, and it worked. Uh, unfortunately, it costs about $160 a month to have the surface and a quarter per minute. For call, so if you fly, adjust that for inflation, that'd be like nine hundred and fifty dollars a month just to have the service, and a buck fifty a minute. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, it's great, but no one can use it. And then after you're done staring at each other for a couple minutes, it's like, all right, well, I gotta go. This is costing me a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember back when my dad had a car phone, you know, and heaven forbid. I picked up that car phone and used it for any oh, yeah. other reason other than like a major accident. <laughs> you know, it was like $7 a minute or something. A, a <laughs> it was more. like ridiculous. But anyways, 
So there's that. But there's something that, that really blew my mind. Uh, I knew about the picture phone, but I did not know about this when I was researching. I came across this. And uh, first trial was in Greensburg, and the second one was in Carnegie. And Bell Telephone, uh, you know, after Alexander Graham Bell, that same company, uh, who had a large presence here in Pittsburgh, and a monopoly, actually, uh, which is a long story, test marketed and produced the very first push-button, touch-tone phone in Pittsburgh. Wow. 1961. Yeah. Before, was it the... Rotary was it phone. Rotary? Yeah. And uh, sure enough, you know, if you check the newspapers from that time, 1961, touch, you know, touch-tone phones, you'll see that that's, that, that I couldn't I couldn't believe it myself when I saw it a couple of days ago when I was researching. I was like, who knew? <laughs> you know, that push-button phones, you know? Um, it's weird because when I was little, I still had a few older relatives yeah. that still had the rotary phone. I know. What are they and waiting was, for? Yeah. And it was kind of like fun. It is it was fun. different because yeah. I was so used to the touch tone by then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, you remember back in the day, you'd pick up the phone and be somebody talking to you say, where do you want to call? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, like, there was no no buttons at first. Yeah, give and me KL897. Right. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Pennsylvania 699, you know. Um. Yeah, so it's a uh, interesting thing about. So now let's jump to uh, some local unions. So you know we know that unions have always existed and had a strong presence here in Pittsburgh. However, did you know that the American Federation of Labor or the AFL had its or you know beginnings here in 1881? I actually did know that. But oh. I don't think that that's uh, common. Uh, it, it, no. it, we share the same initials, so that's... Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. But uh, do you share the same initials with the CIO? No, I don't. AFL-CIO was combined and formed right here in Pittsburgh. Uh, originally called the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions uh, before it became the American Federation of Labor because when it became that, it was actually located in a different state. But the original organization, 1981, founded right here in Pittsburgh... Well, I'm, I'm assuming this stemmed from the steel mills. Yeah, the labor, you know, all the labor, the trades, you know, that that were involved in all that. And uh, speaking of uh, what you could call trade, you know, but not necessarily. In uh, these facts, I'm sure most police people know, and, and policemen, and same with firemen would know these facts. But the very first International Association of Firefighters, local number one. Is right here in Pittsburgh. That's the first, number one, <laughs> right? The first fire union ever exists. That was formed here in 1903. But it doesn't stop there. The Fraternal Order of Police, the FOP, Fort Pitt Lodge number one, right here in Pittsburgh. Formed here in Pittsburgh by two patrol officers, a guy named Martin Toole and Delbert Nagel, along with 21 other uh, policemen formed the very first, world's first, police union, 1915, right here in Pittsburgh. Of course, the FOP, you know, it's a nationwide thing now. Yeah. Yeah, you see the uh, bumper stickers everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, it gets crazier, these facts, right? America's first suburb. Yeah. Now, when I say that, you're like, what? Suburb? You know, how have people been living, you know, outside of the cities, right? That doesn't make a suburb. What I mean by suburb is an actual organized community that was built with a purpose of being a community. Um, 
I give like a Swan Acres or uh, you know a, a, a place that has like a community setting, you know. Um, and this one I'm talking about, 1851, which is credited in all the history books as the world's first suburb, is Evergreen Hamlet in the North Hills. That's a perfect name for a suburb too. For it was while well, you ready for this. That was actually in, created to create a utopian society that would live in Millvale, <laughs> separate from the city of Pittsburgh, away from enough smoke, you know, that, that we actually could breathe, you know, back in that time period. And that's 1851. 1851, because yeah. Because suburbs didn't really get popular until after World War II. That's right. That's right. Uh, Swan Acres, well, I mentioned that, which is also in the North Hills, is also considered one of the best uh modern mental. suburbs that existed it also sounds like it could be a mental hospital too oh for sure swan acres <laughs> you know um another thing um of course we talked about westinghouse tesla but that does deserve the mention you know on the world's first episode right of the world's first use of long distance electrical power <laughs> you know which i don't know if there's something more you could give credit to like that's probably the most important invention on this list uh, or concept. I mean, we all these things are great and all. You know, it's good to have push button phones, but electricity, modern day electricity, that is something uh, out of this world. You know, uh, eighteen eighty five. Uh, but uh, you have a cell phone, right? I'm sure I do. most people listening have cell phones or some kind of messaging service in one way or another. They could be listening to us on their cell phone right now. They could be. They could be. Well. In 1982, CMU professor Scott Fallman was uh, writing an email to another uh, person in C- at CMU and uh, was experimenting with uh, ways to kind of shorthand the email. You know, it was one thing to just say, how you doing, or I like what you're saying, or I don't like what you're saying, and, how, you know, how do I communicate that with the least amount of words possible? And he is credited with creating the world's first emoticon. The grandfather of emoji. That's right. And that is the smiley face emoticon. Uh, the one that is now included in every single device that exists known to man. Uh, these emoticons. I don't think he created the poop emoji. No. Maybe, I, maybe the eggplant. I don't know. No, we'll <laughs> no, give, we'll so, give Cleveland the poop emoji. Yeah, Cleveland. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, uh, But he did create the happy face and the, the frown face. Uh, 1982. Here's one that will blow your mind. 1966, you ever hear of a guy named Dr. Peter Safar? I have not. Neither have I, and it's a shame, because not only did he create and implement wide use of CPR, he's considered the father of CPR. He's the one who even sought out the person to make the dummy that they test CPRs on. He was the guy who did that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, He also happened to have a uh, training program at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and he wasn't from Pittsburgh, but he moved to Pittsburgh. And while here training at Pitt, he formed the very first intensive care unit in any hospital on planet earth, the ICU, but that he didn't stop with just inventing CPR and the ICU and the training program that went along with it. After the death of his daughter, uh, from asthma, you know, sometimes you have an asthma attack. It's like a severe asthma attack and you can't get help right away. Um, you know, you're going to die. And this unfortunately happened to his daughter. And he decided to uh, develop a uh, a system of ambulancing patients, right, from the, you know, the quick as you possibly can from them and bringing them to a hospital or providing on-site EM emergency medical service training. And he's cre- created 
the world's first EMS service right here in Pittsburgh, 1966. See, so CPR he didn't invent in Pittsburgh, but he did do the ICU training and the EMS here in Pittsburgh. Well, both of those are so synonymous with, with hospital care and, and emergency response now. <laughs> yeah. It's an entire industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so is. many of these things. Yeah, I'm sure industry. some of you listening are EMS you know, people, so... Uh, or working at ICU. I mean, you got this guy, and you got Pittsburgh to thank for that. Uh, you know, who knew? I mean, that, that's just crazy. Um, oh, I forgot to mention a weird sports fact, right? 1893, just a year or two after the guy who invented basketball uh, invented the game, which was at a local YMCA is where he invented the game, something for people to do, you know, throw this ball in a basket. Um, pretty soon it was like one YMCA would start competing against other YMCAs, and other different types of like health organizations. And it finally moved to college campuses uh, within a few years. And New Brighton and Geneva College in 1893 have a publicized game against each other, two colleges, uh, basically, uh, and credited as the world's first college basketball game. Right here, <laughs> Pittsburgh. <laughs> so that's. Yeah, hockey. baseball, basketball, yeah, basketball, hockey, football. Um, you. Uh, you know, no, tennis ask, didn't begin here, you know, but uh, the uh, lacrosse didn't. Let like, me ask you this. Or, I don't know. I'll have to look. Um, library.gov mm-hmm. says that the first basketball game with five players on each side was when the University of Iowa played uh, the University yeah. of Chicago for of an course. experimental game. Experimental game, yes. Yeah. Now look at the first college basketball game with Geneva College in New Brighton. And you'll see Not that. 1893. That's 1893. three years before this in 1896. That's right. Oh, speaking of hockey, I forgot to mention that the very first world's first hockey trade between teams also occurred here in Pittsburgh. The very first um, changing players on the fly, you know, like how you watch a hockey game and, you know, the play's still going on, and yet there's people jumping off the ice and people jumping on the ice. That happened first with a Pittsburgh team. Line shifts. Line shifts. (laughs) You know, it gets crazier. The world's first indoor ice skating ring. Pittsburgh, Shenley Park Casino, 1893. Go back and listen to Pittsburgh, the birthplace of hockey podcast for that. Yeah. Uh, That's a good one. It also has, um, well, there's also another hockey first, the trade. Yeah, the very first hockey trade where the the Pittsburgh Pirates, hockey team, Pirates. And not the NHL team that would show up later in. That's right. It's not even that same NHL. It was a different NHL team called the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, well, not even NHL. It was the WPHL at the time. But they traded three players to the Pittsburgh Bankers. And that is considered the first hockey trade in the world. <laughs> so this is outside of Canada even, you know. Um, crazy stuff. Uh, so you ready for this? Do you like or don't you like uh, that time of year? which I think we're probably close to approaching, where you have to turn back or turn forward your clocks. Yeah, this is the time of year when everybody gets an hour of sleep here in the fall. So, yeah, right. this is when you like it. Oh, it was my favorite, man. As a kid, we'd have like, I remember sometimes it would happen close to Halloween, and you'd have like an extra hour to watch, you know, stay up and eat candy and watch movies. <laughs> but whether you like it or not, daylight savings time was in fact coined and produced and signed into law by a Pittsburgher, a guy named Robert Garland, who was a Chamber of Commerce president, and he voted in favor and convinced everyone else to vote, too, 
for the first commercial body in the world to present the subject to a United States government, and it was signed into law by Woodrow Wilson in 1918, and Daylight Savings Time is now seven months out of the year to this day. It's only, it started in 1918, so think about that. Are we? What, what happened to the hour prior to 1918? Where did it go? It was just darker <laughs> earlier. Uh, yeah. Or later, depending on the time. How of year. weird. <laughs> you know, so, like, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know what else doesn't make sense? In 1883, at noon on November 18th, Allegheny Observatory transmitted the world's first telegraph signal to sync railroad schedules across America to create what they would call standard time. This would uh, adjust all clocks to a five-zone system on the 90th meridian. But, yeah. Well, so, this was huge because in other places it was 2.30 and you thought it was 3.30 mm-hmm. and the train schedules were all just all out of whack. messed up. Yeah, I mean, even even like one was seven minutes fast, one was, you know, 15 minutes slow. There was no real universal time. Just kind of get there when it gets there or you missed <laughs> yeah, it already. That's, that's true. You had a general idea. Uh, but it wasn't until Samuel Langley at the Allegheny Observatory decided to click the switch, you know, and officially make it official that daylight, uh, that standard time now is a thing in North America, and that was invented and first performed here in Pittsburgh. Well, the thing about going back to— Well, Allegheny City, technically, I guess. Going back to daylight savings time, or daylight saving time, is that um, before it became universally— accepted people were adopting it while like another town wouldn't yeah and uh <laughs> yeah. dr knowledge who had a show on kdk radio for years s- told a story one time about how you could go from pittsburgh to somewhere like wheeling or somewhere in ohio and go through seven time zones Whoa, yeah how crazy because it wasn't synced up there's more proof to me that time does not exist <laughs> so, but it's good that they figured it out so we could at least yeah that is good i i do applaud them on that Yes, because that is crazy to think about. Like you know, no one knows, so it's just we have to figure it out, and we'll call this. I mean, luckily in Pittsburgh, they decided to actually formalize it and call it a thing. So, speaking of TV, you know, right after that first TV broadcast, by the way, the very first educational TV station in the world was created. Remember, back in those days, you had ABC, NBC, CBS, right? You had or, or Dumont Network and stuff. All they're like. You know, you only had three channels, and out of those three channels, mainly it was like stuff, thing like your show of shows, you know, and old Sid Caesar type of things, or I Love Lucy type of, you know, reruns, or not reruns, but, you know, premieres, I guess. Um, not much education going on. In fact, most of the time when you see the TV, it was people getting hit in the face with pies, you know, and slapstick type of stuff, or just heavy dramatic, you know, teleplays. Uh, it wasn't until a Pittsburgh company who called themselves after uh, uh, a Greek saying, a Latin saying, quad erat demonstratium, which means what was to be shown, came up in 1954 and founded it right there uh, in, in Pittsburgh and Oakland and became the world's first educational television station, WQED. So that's what, dub, that's what the QED stands for. That's right, quad erat demonstratium. What was to be shown? Interesting, huh? <laughs> so, like, uh, I mean, I think, and then everything that came out of QBD, I mean, all the, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers and 
and everything that come out of it. I mean, it was just incredible to think like how they, uh, you know, took a, a, a thing, television, and turned it for the use, good use, and uh, how, you know, educational use, uh, which was un, unseen of at the time. So, 1876, a guy named Julius Lemoyne, okay, in North Franklin in Washington County, Decided to build this weird building, which he coined and called the Lemoyne Crematory. And it became the world's first cremation center. Uh, oddly enough, Julius Lemoyne became the third victim. Oh. <laughs> and uh, they only cremated 41 people at this place uh, in Washington County. But it is in the history books as being the first known crematorium in 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 the world can you imagine if he's on um and they read his will and it's like do not cremate me (laughs) right (laughs) i need to be buried exactly that's horrible why would anybody do this right right yeah uh it's crazy um so going down my list here right 1957 you know they 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 decide that after the atomic bomb is dropped right in in 1947 or uh, 45 i mean the uh, and after World War II's over, okay, they decide to uh, kind of play around with this atomic energy idea. Yeah, that's well, just play around. Yeah, with just play around with plutonium and you know <laughs> uranium. Um, and uh, they chose Pittsburgh. They're like, hey, Pittsburgh, you want some uranium? Uh, and someone said, yeah. And they uh, they shipped it here with uh, with approval from Dwight D. Eisenhower himself, who showed up on the groundbreaking ceremony. The ship import and uh, created the world's first nuclear power plant. And that was in December 18th, 1957 in Beaver County. And that stayed open until about 1982. Is there still a power plant in Beaver County? I don't know. I know that they had a, uh, that one was decommissioned. So there might be more that were built. Uh, no, it was smaller than what you would see like on the Simpsons or one of these other kind of nuclear power plants. However, it still counts, you know, uh, to using uh, uranium and, and all that to break down and produce what, at the time at least, was cleaner energy um, in a way that you would never have to refuel it. I mean, you'd have one little, you know, atomic core would power the thing for 50 years. So it was a pretty interesting uh, thing they, they did and, and how they uh, did it, but uh, another strange and unusual thing to come out of Western Pennsylvania was, of course, in 1940, uh, the the government wanted a uh, kind of a utility vehicle that they could use during World War uh, World War II, and uh, a vehicle for government purposes, or GP, or Jeep. <laughs> so they uh, hired this company in Butler, PA, called the Bantam Company, the American Bantam Company. And to create these things, which they would call Jeeps. And uh, they were the first in the world to ever produce one. It, I thought that was funny how they got the name Jeep. It was from that general or government purpose. Just like Humvee, right? Humvee stands for high, motili- high mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicle. Humvee. Oh, like GI, G.I. <laughs> Joe, general right. issue. There you go. Yeah, so uh, who knew, right? Now you, now you know. So there still is uh, a power plant on that. In that area and shipping. Okay. All right. Sweet. Good. Um, You know, speaking of atomic energy, 
the USS Nautilus. What a, what a good name, huh? Built by Westinghouse in 1954, became the world's first atomic submarine. <laughs> so we also had that. That was, was it built in the waters here, or just built here? Built here. It wasn't in the waters here. It was used. Uh, it was used a lot, in fact. Uh, Nautilus being named after, of course, uh, Moby Dick and you know Captain Nahab and all that. That was the name of the ship there. World's tallest school. Which one do you think it is? Oh, hmm. Hmm. Is that a uh, mm, Pioneer Hall in Point Park? <laughs> right. Yeah, Point Park. Yes. Uh, Cathedral of Learning, of course. Cathedral Learning at 535 feet tall, 42 stories, the tallest educational building in the Western Hemisphere to this day. The tallest school, by the way, in case you were curious, is the University of Moscow in Russia. Hmm. Those Russians. <laughs> right? But uh, that is the tallest. And not today. But at the time when it was built, especially, it was the world's largest, tallest school. We were just talking about the world's first atomic submarine. Why don't we go back a hundred years or so to the uh, first steamboat that would head? Yeah. So west, right? You think like you know boats? You know how do you propel a boat? You know um, by hand. You know is how you did it back then. You know big old oar. You'd hire a bunch of people. You know labor. To come there and paddle you down the river, uh, or a paddle boat, you know, uh, some kind of way you can move, you know, get, bring a horse on board and literally tie him to a rope around a thing that would spin around a wheel, right? Uh, but the concept of steam and how you could use the power of steam uh, in a boat was indeed invented and created right here in Pittsburgh. The first steamboat. In Western waters. So West, I mean, this was the West. It was a good ship lollipop. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 1811, Robert Fulton and Robert Livingston, I presumed, uh, funded, and it was built by one of the Roosevelt's, Nicholas Roosevelt. Uh, however, it did sink in 1814. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the New Orleans was the name of that boat. It was the first steamboat of the West. And then... About 50 years later, a little over 50 years later, we have the world's first air break. Yeah. So, you know, at age 22, George Westinghouse comes up with that idea of the air break, an invention so necessary that the United States government makes a law stating that all tra trains must have Westinghouse air brakes. I mean, that's a big invention. Uh, and I can't get too much into it because we'll be here all day. And you can go back to <laughs> go the back George to Washington. the Westinghouse episodes. House. Yeah, some of our best, I mean, I talked about him today. I gave a speech and uh, to a big group of people at U.S. Steel Tower and and uh, tried to somehow sum up George Westinghouse's story within five minutes, and uh, uh, it was interesting. Anyways, you know, you, you, we were talking about CPR, right, and the ICU and the EMS. Well, Pittsburgh also has another hospital connection. And, and I, I didn't put it down here, but the world's first Mercy Hospital was also here in Pittsburgh. It was 1849 by the Sisters of Mercy. However, because there's more Mercy <laughs> hospitals across the country. But all the way back in the revolutionary time, 1778, General Edward Hand created for care of the Fort Pitt troops a two-story log hospital in Crafton called Hand Hospital. Uh, it was the very first federal hospital in, you know, the United States. The very first federal hospital in the United States. Right. It's on Steuben Street, yeah, where a miniature golf course is right now, <laughs> across the street from the park. Yeah, yeah. So, 
And there is a uh, Crazy. historical There is a plaque there. there, yeah. But just like there's a plaque for the pro football player, you know, Pudge Huffelfinger at Northside. But, you know, th- tell me if you know where it is. That's the thing. Not many people do. Uh, and that's why it's important to talk about these things. Um, you know, of course, entertainment, uh, 1893, this guy, George Washington Gale Ferris, who lived at 204 Art Street in Allegheny City, invented the what would later be called the Ferris Wheel. His original one was 264 feet high. You carry 2,000 passengers per load. Ooh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> 1893, uh, probably made out of iron, you know, of all things, too. So it's probably not exactly the strongest of all machines. Uh, but they did do it. And uh, interesting stuff, right? So um, we're going to get to uh, how about. How about the world's first gas station? Yeah, so, you know, you think that the world's first gas station would be like in Michigan or somewhere where they had a lot of cars, you know, maybe outside the Ford plant, right? I think, you know, he's making all these Model Ts. You know, how do you fill them up? Um, And what you did back in the day is you went to places that that sold many things, not just gas. You know, they they had all lots of different types of things that sell there, including gas. Uh, but some guy here in Pittsburgh, in the East Liberty of all places, uh, and today there is a CVS at the same location, uh, decided to create what today is considered the world's first single gas station. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy uh, to think that some guy would uh, somehow figure out how to do that. Um, and uh, built by Gulf, you know, the Gulf Refining Company. It was the corner of Baum and St. Clair Street. Uh, originally sold 30 gallons. At twenty-seven cents a gallon, interesting, right? All these things. I'm going to lead you with one last world's first. There's lots of world's firsts. You know, there's even more than I could talk about right now, and we probably will touch on some of them on the Pittsburgh first because a lot of them have to do with uh, people more so than uh, uh, these events. Uh, but I will say, um, you know, the T-Rex. It's at the Carnegie Museum, uh, the big one. You know, whatever you want to call. Not them. Dippy. Not Dippy. Although Dippy is the, not a T-Rex. the most complete Diplodocus. Uh, you know what Diplodocus means, by the way? Yeah, double dokeless. <laughs> exactly. What's the plural of, double, uh, of Diplodocus? Diplodoci? I, I will say yes. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, Diplodocus means double beam. Like as in steel beam. Ah. Yeah, okay. double beam. Anyways, I'm not talking about Dippy. I'm talking about the T-Rex. The coolest... You know, the tyrant lizard king, right? Uh, discovered that one there in the Carnegie. Discovered in 1902 uh, in Hell Creek, Montana. All, you know, right? By a guy named Barnum Brown. He was a uh, the Indiana Jones of his day. He truly was. He used to show up at Diggs in Montana wearing fur coats. And uh, he was just a weird and unusual guy. Uh, however, while digging there, they came across lots of different types of smaller animals with giant teeth and and uh, other types of dinosaurs, but nothing like what he was to uncover on this day in 1902, which was this giant, what they would later call Trinosaurus Rex. Um, the first time ever anyone in history has ever seen a full skeleton of one. They've seen you know bones like a tooth you know here and there or claws or whatever, but never the full thing. And he uncovered this full Tyrannosaurus Rex, the only known example 
Can you believe that? Still to this day? To this day. Uh, Isn't that crazy? Like, that would be mind-blowing seeing I it for the first time. I thought T-Rexes were all over the place. Turns out there's only been like 15 ever found. Ever. <laughs> so, uh, But the one in the Carnegie was the first and the biggest and the most complete. However, it wasn't actually fully complete because after he found it in Montana, he shipped it to like a library somewhere to kind of keep it in storage. And, uh, and then he sold it to Andrew Carnegie to put in the museum and they shipped it all over there and everything rebuilt it. And you know, it is there to this day. However, it was missing a rib bone and it was still happened to be in that archive and it was later returned in 2014 Oh wow! to be put back together. So now it's finally complete, but yeah, Imagine it took this, like, that night, long. Night at the museum type thing. They put the final bone in, it comes to life and like, <laughs> oh, that was a bad idea. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think about this, this list of world's first most impressive i think all of us have a no probably a handful of those mm-hmm. but just to hear them all at one time and that's not even everything no i mean do you think it's something in the water in the air like what what is it about pittsburgh we haven't here uh we didn't even we can didn't get to the continuous roll press no printing press <laughs> you know the, the printing uh, the continuous printing press you know uh which I, was I, a game changer probably the first time since gutenberg yeah, that came up something with was different, you know. And I then, mean, uh, bingo. Yeah, Where bingo. would we be without bingo? I know, I know. Originally called Bino, by the way, uh, by Hugh J. Ward. And uh, he would take it around to, like, Western Pennsylvania Carnivals, this game. And later he didn't like the name, so he just changed it to Bingo. And it became a song. That's right. Uh, NGO. <laughs> so the, uh, but, I mean, do you think Pittsburgh had anything to do with it? Or do you think it's just by chance? that all this stuff happened right here in Pittsburgh. Well, it seems that, like the mayor said, this is a place where innovation and creativity kind of come to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, like he said, somebody says, I'd like to do this, and then the guy next to him says, I could build that. That's right. Who was it? Was it Brashear? No, it wasn't Brashear. Well, Brashear is a, a good example because that happened to him. Remember, he just built that little lens and showed up at the Allegheny Observatory. There happened to be some multimillionaire standing there who said, can you build these? I'll gladly pay you whatever you want. <laughs> you know, same thing I think happened with, uh, there was another guy who was found someone downtown, you know, one day and this, the guy apprenticed him or whatever. And, um, and kind of took him under his wing and it turned out to be like this multimillionaire guy who was made his dreams come true. Well, it's funny because you do, you know, we do criticize those businessmen, uh, for, for some unethical practices here and there. But mm-hmm. when you look at Brashear, this investor is like, stop giving these things away. You need <laughs> yeah, exactly. to make a living. Exactly. I mean, most of these people just did it for the love of it. And I'm sure, like, George Ferris wasn't looking to make a dime, you know, with this giant wheel. Like, I don't even know what his goals were. Of, I think like, it was to hurt a lot of people. I don't know. You know, make people dizzy? I, I don't know. <laughs> but um, it's fascinating to think about. So I'm going to leave you with that. And um, think about what other kind of world's first or Pittsburgh first that you might want to hear on another episode. Let us know if you know of any Pittsburgh firsts that you would like confirmed, and uh, we'll do it in our question and answer segment, which yeah. we have not done. No, I know. Which yeah. we need to get back to. But uh, we we do get your emails and um, any subject at all. It's oddpittsburgh at gmail.com, or you can message john right on his facebook page that's uh, facebook.com slash odd pittsburgh that's right just type in odd pittsburgh in the search bar you'll, pop right you'll, up. you'll find me you look where the odd is and that's see the one i will be the, the one-eyed <laughs> pittsburgher will give it away that's right so without further ado 
That's it, Fort Pitt.